Welcome to Room of Requirement, episode 7. A podcast dedicated to soul care and resistance in the time of Trump. Uh, that was brought to you by Kevin Carter, uh, a friend of mine, a dear, dear friend. Uh, I guess that will be our intro music from now on. Yeah. Well, thank uh, you, Kevin. Yeah. And so we like to start our podcast by checking in with each other, oh, sure. uh, making sure that we are relatively healthy and sane. Uh, so so how, how you been? Like, last weekend, you weren't so good. Yeah. So uh, I think this week, actually, just talking to you and doing the podcast has, has been pretty therapeutic. Um, but yeah, this this week has actually been pretty good. Again, like um, the basic kind of standard, what you do to s- stay healthy. Like I think I generally eat well. I generally exercise. All of that's pretty good. Um, and uh, I think my mental health has been a little better, if only just because the politics haven't been so crazy. So again, I think my mental uh, state of being is tied uh, to the state of national politics, which is a really scary idea. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I don't know if there's a short-term solution for that, but um, but you know, ups and downs, and, and this week was relatively good. What about you, man? I feel like I've been better than ever. Yeah, uh, really, really. Yeah, I've been doing well. Like, I mean, that's I'm, cool. I, but I look at it like revenge. To the extent that I'm able to thrive, and my friends are able to thrive, right. and people I know are able to like do really well during the Trump administration and make lots of money and have a great life, it's like we are winning. It's like the fuck, the fuck you is turned on its head. Yeah, that's fair. I'm worried about almost everybody I know on a regular basis. So yeah, that, that definitely causes me strife and pain. All right. So every time I do feel good. I take extra, like, pride in it because okay. it's, like, it's not affecting right, me, well, you know? Like, I don't want it, to... It's going to be bad enough without doing double damage, you know right. what I mean? Just keeping your head above water. Yeah, yeah, Emotionally, yeah, yeah. I yeah, think, yeah. is a lot. And one of the things that I think has changed is a lot of people on our side of the political spectrum feel sensitive to politics now, right? right. Because of, so whatever you say... Whatever you can say about the Trump presidency, I mean, I feel like it's been a unifier... But but to, but specifically, so you're sleeping better? Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, yeah. Specifically, uh, I definitely slept better. Uh, I've just been busy, so um, I'm, I'm trying to get better about sleeping. Um, um, but eating well, exercising, yeah. and, and generally have a, a better attitude or outlook right now. Um, did you get any further in Harry Potter? Or? I did, actually. Yeah. I'm going to finish book three. Yeah. Um, so I haven't started book four. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, I picked it up after our podcast. Yeah. I mean, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's it's an easy read to, like, just kind of, at the end of the day, just kind of, like, shut down and read this, like, very delightful, charming yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, And you, you are eating well? We yeah, worry about yeah, you. eating well. Uh, you know, um, I started reading the Wizard of Oz series again. Oh, okay. I've never read it. Really? It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. delightful. It's 14 books, okay. you know, and they're all just crazy. I remember reading them when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. They're all just, it's a whole real American, and it's American in that it's, like, kind of crappy and ad hoc, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, like, making shit up, and right. it's like, man, eh, whatever, but it, it feels really, like, vital to our, you know, shared experience. That's cool. I, and so getting back into it and reading them again, I'm, I'm noticing new things, and it's it's a it's a journey, it's a, you know, the end of the rainbow, man. All right. And, I, you know, I think about how that was written, I think the first one came out in, like, 1901, yeah, it was written kind of in the Gilded Age, kind of right. post Gilded Age America. Yeah, just as when things were starting to turn. Yeah. Right, and there were a lot of problems that are similar to the problems we have today right. of that wealth inequality and you know labor strife mm-hmm. and uh, people not knowing how to deal with massive influx of immigrants from Europe. Right, and other or the Chinese. The Chinese, yeah, yeah. So it, I, I think there's a, some roots there and to the psyche of a troubled America that I'm... Well, you know, L. Frank Baum, I mean, he insisted that he didn't have a political metaphor. Oh, yeah. The more that... I forgot this, but it opens with, like, 
you know, too many children's books are scary and cause nightmares, and like, yeah. I want to write books that aren't like that at all, that are just like fun and nice. He writes the most dark fucking <laughs> book. So, in order, so one of the things that we have to talk about a little bit is not only just maintaining levels, but also how are we going to improve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are we, um, how are we do you have a do you have an action plan to get better? <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to lose weight. I think that would be a bad idea. Yeah, I don't think you can. Uh, you don't so, have much to spare. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to work on a couple books, get those finished, trying to write books. So I'm getting a little bit in every day, and that's to me, that's like my own. That's that's where I want to be. I want to have two books done by the end of this year. Okay. Um, so that's my goals. Okay. And books that are not like political and like fiction, man. Like, All, right. All right. How about you? you have uh, so I think my, my goals are always a little uh, more short-term, but... Uh, this month, and I think it's already, what, the 10th, um, I was planning to uh, double down a little bit on, on exercise and, and try to uh, do a little bit more yoga, a little bit more Pilates, just to get a little bit more variety in my workout. And, um, and you know, uh, towards the end of the month, I uh, go back to martial arts, which is the thing I was promising Yeah, your do. arm looks pretty much healed yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, exactly. So my arm is kind of healed up, and so I can go back, I think, yeah, uh, yeah. in the next week or two. Do you, do you go someplace in, in Jackson Heights? Or? No, I, I haven't even started, but he, uh, uh, I, I used to go to someplace I, uh, when I lived in Crown Heights. I used to go to a dojo around there. Um, so I think I'd probably go to a place in Manhattan. I don't think there are that many Aikido studios around uh, Jackson Heights. So I would have to go to Manhattan, and then I'd have to sort of start all over again. But uh, so that's something I was thinking about doing in the next couple of weeks. I look, I look forward to going to one of your uh, do what, what did, recital. Or? Yeah, yeah, my Aikido recital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where I where I get my butt kicked by fourteen year olds. Everybody claps. <laughs> I'll clap front row. Uh, anyway, so that's that. I think uh, we got a little bit of an action plan going on. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, so uh, you want to talk about politics? Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk, do it. Let's talk about politics. Um, as with last week, uh, we come back to immigration, but it seems like the administration has been handed a major setback. Yeah, it's great. It's it's a huge loss at a time when they're ill-equipped to handle such a thing. Yeah, because they don't have the bureaucracy in place, and they certainly don't have their messaging around it. And it was a it was a unanimous decision. Yeah, and they really didn't a broad and unanimous decision because I think they could have cut out pieces of the executive order right. and said we objected to this, but it was a broad and unanimous. Yeah. yeah, decision. And to my mind, the best part about it is the way that they factored in statements that he's made about Muslims, right? Other people, just his campaign promises, right? In deciding whether this was constitutional or not, and implicitly, although this wasn't mentioned, yeah. Uh, also, what he said about the judicial system and judges, right? sure, yeah, right, yeah. right, exactly. So, so yeah. that, to my mind, is not is going to have a second order effect of making him. More nervous about tweeting, about speaking, about saying things. He's no, going to realize that it has an effect outside of his goals. Yeah, I don't think it'll actually reach. I don't think it'll actually have an effect in a sane and more rational person. <laughs> uh, I think I think that it would definitely there will be a pullback. But I, uh, so much of the Trump brand, so much of his mo is about just shooting from the hip. I don't know if he can rein that in at this point, right? Why Trump won't be a great American autocrat is because he's old, right? He doesn't have yeah. time to learn on the job. It's true. It's and so true. he's kind of set in his way. So if he thinks, oh, this is how this is what got me here, this is why I'm a success, even though this is a huge setback and it will have implications about how he should conduct policy, I don't know whether he will be able to rein himself in or whether he will have the kind of wherewithal to appoint someone who's responsible for reining him in. I do think that it will create strife and turmoil in the staff and people are going to be despondent about being handed so quick a loss based upon such loose language and he's going to have a hard time right. maintaining the enthusiasm of the people around him for the plans that they have right for someone whose brand is winning and yeah. winning huge this is a loss yeah, yeah. and so how do you come back from that and Trump's past record shows that he just ignores it or tries to spin it in some way but now he's very much on a national stage, and I don't know if it works as well. And it's not just a loss, but this was the thing that I think had the broadest support for it. In terms of his base, this was something that was certainly very popular. Right, it's a free free thing to do. You, right. don't, have to, you don't have to get the, the Congress on your side. Yeah, there's no, there's no Ways and Means Committee to go through, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but also, I think uh, it had 
potential, I think, in, in, in the minds of people like Steve Bannon or Steve Miller of reaching across the aisle. Like, part of the long-term strategy is to reach to a, a white working class that traditionally votes Democrat. And being tough on immigration and antagonistic towards immigrants was going to be one of those key planks in that platform. Right? Yeah, definitely true. I, th- I also think it's important to hammer home that if there is some sort of horrible terrorist attack, that it is because weak Donald Trump couldn't <laughs> overcome the judicial system <laughs> in order to protect yeah. us. Yeah. He, could, he couldn't take on some federal judges? What a pussy. Three. Three of <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. Three of them. You couldn't buy a judge, motherfucker? Protect me. I'm yeah, scared. you only two of them. Yeah. You had a Republican yeah, on his side. Yeah, that's so weird. Weak, weak Donald Trump. <laughs> weak, weak Donald Trump. Before we leave immigration as a topic, I had a serious question. Oh, I don't really understand how the legal system works, right? I mean, I'm not trained as a lawyer. It's pretty intricate. It's very detail-oriented. Um, and I don't know if you have a source of information where you are like, okay, well, this is the person. I don't understand what's going on. These are the sources I, re- uh, I rely on. And to me, I'm reading, uh, and actually the sources that I turn to are actually like on the right. So uh, either Red State or National Review, and there are some pretty interesting legal scholars who will talk about it. And not necessarily, they're not necessarily always pro-Trump. Um, but I don't know if there's a left equivalent. Yeah, of National Lawyers Guild. Uh, National Lawyers Guild. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They're a, kind of a, a leftist legal organization. Okay. That is you know most uh, interested in prison reform and okay. uh, you know drug legalization, any leftist policy you could think that you would need lawyers for. National Lawyers Guild is your leftist activist organization. Okay. Yeah, I just think it's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, for sure. You you want to go to law school, you and me? Yeah, right. (laughs) There's a constitutional law class, I think, in in one of the big um, online MOOCs. Uh, Maybe maybe Coursera has like a constitutional law class. But it's something I I feel like I need to be far more informed about in order to have a a much more um, respectable opinion. The judicial system is the branch of government that, I guess, is not in complete control of the Republicans right now. So it's more yeah. interesting to see the way that they will fight. Right. I, I think it's, yeah, interesting is the right word. I think I want to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, so uh, Gorsuch, I guess the nomination is going forward. Yeah. Um, there were some murmurings about how Gorsuch had... A couple of words of cr- maybe not criticism, but felt that demoralizing, demoralizing, yeah. right? Um, about some of the ways that uh, Donald Trump was interacting with the judiciary, which maybe he shouldn't be interacting with the judici- judiciary, especially right. not since Gorsuch is so handsome. Yeah, <laughs> you can't yeah. can't take on a tall, handsome man. Nope. <laughs> um, uh, so, I guess to me, I, I was wondering what you thought about it, um, and I actually, uh, to me, this is. I, I think it's the left grasping at straws, right? I mean, he can. I, I, if anything, it's him being just slightly impolitic. I think. I think some of this is, is sort of planted in the media in a way that it makes him look more centrist, maybe a little bit more wary of Donald Trump than he actually may be. Yeah, I think that. I think that. I think the Senate would like to confirm him as quickly as possible and get it off the table. Yeah, so, so I think they're in a little dirtbag alliance with Trump right now to make him yeah. seem better than he is in order to just take it away. Yeah, I, I approve of, and let's. I mean, I, I think that's a good strategy, so I'm not too concerned about it. I think we're, we're both in agreement that they should just let him sail through. And that, yeah, uh, it doesn't sound good, but honestly, the, the, the minute he is done, the fights can be about things that Americans care about and understand, as opposed to a Supreme Court nomination. Right, and it will be good for the left. It goes back to it. What is the Democratic strategy in terms of the federal government? And to me, this is this is a battle. I think maybe even the base is pushing for. But it shouldn't be, yeah. right? Because it's a waste. You're not gonna. In the end, you're gonna not gonna get much out of it, and it's a waste of capital, political capital. What little political capital you have in the federal government at this point? Yeah, you want Trump to not win battles where there's opposition, and he will win this battle either way. Yeah. So best to and make sure that he is simultaneously fighting a different battle that he will not win. Right. The other thing that I think made a lot of news is his entanglement with Nordstrom. Effectively, uh, Nordstrom backs away from Ivanka Trump's line, and they say, okay, well, we can't, it's no longer making us money, or it's no, it doesn't make economic sense, so we're no longer going to offer this. Um, and then Trump gets involved, and he says bad things about Nordstrom, and then Kellyanne Conway backs him up. 
I just can't see how this plays well with the business base of, of the Republican Party. If you want to start thinking about where do you make inroads to the Republican coalition, Donald Trump is doing a great job of pissing off business right now. Yeah. And so unless he gives them a huge gift in the next couple of weeks with some executive order, or so, I, and I, I don't know what that would be because I think things like tax reform will take a while to work through Congress. Mm-hmm. Also, people who intend to run against him in four years want credit for that. Right. They don't want it to be Trump's. They want it to be... Paul Ryan wants it to be his tax reform. Right, right. I think he's done a very good job of isolating his business base and done a lot of things to antagonize them. Yeah, especially, you know, multinationals. Yeah. uh, Who already have reason to distrust him. Right. I've been following his Twitter account pretty religiously since I've been betting on it. Okay. And it's interesting... Are you me. making money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doubled my money last week. All right. Yeah, the, uh, the, it's been interesting that since that happened, he's it, it, both the president's Twitter account and the, his personal Twitter Real account... Real Donald Trump, yeah. ...have both been utterly silent. Utterly also, silent. the president's Twitter account has stopped retweeting Donald Trump's, which is what got him in trouble in the first place. Because Donald Trump... Real Donald Trump put that out, and then the president's Twitter account tweeted it, and then it became right. seen as a conflict of interest, so... That has stopped happening altogether. Well, I think that's asinine because I think most people know who the president of the United States is, right? Many masks. Right, right, right. Koi Kabuki. Right, 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 right. This is, it's all theater. It's all theater. I do think some a good like meme out there mm-hmm. to to get out there for the kids, the meme magicians out there. Yeah. My fellow sorcerers and yeah. demons. Yeah. Is Donald Trump basic bitch. <laughs> you know, because why does the president of the United States have opinions about Nordstrom? I, 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 I know so many goddamn strong women, right? You know, Donald Trump is not a strong woman. No, he's not. <laughs> and he's already pumpkin spice colored. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, 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 before we leave this, I just want to say, like, I mean, I think this is just another piece of evidence that should things turn against Donald Trump in the federal bureaucracy, I mean, this is, he's just walking down this, like, classic road of autocracy, and what fells classic autocrats is the fact that they get really involved in this, like, family businesses, they don't draw a line, and Americans are super sensitive to that, or they have been historically, and you want someone who's who's now blurring the line between family business and the highest office in the nation, so... I think it's not it's not enough to force a turning point. Yeah. But this is just like one more piece of evidence that should an impeachment come, this is just another thing I'm gonna throw at him. I mean he's making again, this is just a self inflicted wound. Yeah. I don't know, we'll see we'll see what happens. Developing. We'll see what, what, what yeah, I don't chain know the, department story attacks next. Right, right, right. Go. Seamless is too slow. <laughs> <laughs> um can we talk about the confirmation hearings real quick? Sure, absolutely. So there's a lot of cacophony around the DeVos nomination, but effectively she passed through. Yeah. Uh, there are some people who defected over. Um, Murkowski and Collins. Yeah. Alaska and Maine. Um, to to block or try to say, and, and to prevent the nomination of DeVos. So what do you think, was this an effective strategy? There's certainly a lot of... Well, there's certainly a lot of media yeah. uh, turmoil thrown up around this, effectively, but in, in the end, it didn't get through, so yeah, they didn't I, prevent her from being nominated. No, but they never were going to. Right. I, I don't think they were... They're not able to prevent any of these cabinet members from being nominated. They okay. don't have a Senate majority. So, and also, no Republican is going to be the one that crosses the line, so they're only right. going to vote... Up uh, until 50-50. Yeah, and, and to, unless... Right, so the, the strategy here is to get space for Murkowski and Collins to be able to defect. The strategy I heard bandied about was that you get Sessions nominated or confirmed first, mm-hmm. and then they're, you know, after Murkowski and Collins have already said they're going to defect, yeah. and then they don't have space to cross over so they can cut DeVos. Okay. But that would have never happened. Instead, Murkowski and Collins would have gone back over, and then you wouldn't have had the on-record Republican senators being on your side okay. for this important moment. Schumer, the Senate leadership, was trying to create a kind of stratification of who was able to vote against uh, the most cabinet seats, right? He wants to have like a, a nice little chart to okay. show who the most... And he wanted, and I think specifically he wanted Gillibrand to be able to vote against the most of them in order to pump up her brand. Okay. So she got to vote so against he's nine. So he's setting up some, oh, a protege of his yeah, yeah, in order to York. say, I objected the most to Trump. I objected, I was the most objective to Trump's cabinet seats. And then it you know, splits on down the line and you see the most 
you know, Booker's up there okay. second place, Campbell Harris is in there at third. Okay. You know, and then you're moving down the line for potential people to run against to have these good votes on them uh, to run against Trump in four years. Probably gonna be a senator that runs against Trump. I would be because there's just not enough a lot of uh, Democratic governors. governors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody wanted to be the person that voted the most against. Yeah, okay. uh, and Gilbrand got to be that person. So the reason why you can't have uh, everybody voting against uh, in t- all these cabinet picks is because the elections are coming up in two years and some of these senators need to appear more conservative than others for, right. to protect their constituencies. Right. So you have to have that stratification of, some, of you know, the amount of liberal you are on record, right? right. And you need to have people that are up uh, in 2018 to be able to have been the most cooperative with Republicans and have that as part of their record. Like, I'm a bipartisan senator. I'm not as liberal as that Elizabeth Warren, you know. Right. So who was, who was pitching themselves as a conservative then? Or Manchin or whatever yeah, yeah, in West Virginia. Right. Uh, he crossed On that. Sessions. Yeah, yeah, on Sessions. Okay. Uh, and that's that's the that's the trade-off, because Collins and Rakarski have the opposite problem. Right. They need to look a little more liberal for their elections. Okay. All right. So sure. that was the trade-off. It's all for show. On fights that we can't possibly win, such as these confirmation hearings, it's not a good idea to uh, get too worried one way or the other, right. or to hate our senators for voting one way or the other. Okay. They, think of them as a collective, more as a team, uh, rather than individuals that we're trying to purity test. All right. Um, so I guess this brings us to the Sessions nomination, because the big news about it was Elizabeth Warren's silencing. Yeah. Um, and then there was another side of it, which was Marco Rubio tried to make a plea for comedy and also, you know, set up his presidential bid. Right. Like, I mean, so, um, so I guess, and when we're talking about Senate or uh, confirmation strategy, is Elizabeth Warren just a wild cannon or, or, uh, is, was there a deeper strategy or is she just kind of operating on her own? I think reading that particular letter from Coretta Scott King into the Senate record was a, you know, that was something they should have let her do. I think shutting her up was a was a flexing of power that went overboard, and that was just a tactical mistake on there. And they should have just let it happen and moved on. And you know, yeah, uh, I think that was the problem. That that was that was a fuck up on the Republicans' part because it did give her, you know, a, a day in the news cycle of being a hero, which. It was clearly a calculated move, right? She's reading someone else's letter. She yeah. herself is not defaming a senator, right? Um, so she was playing a smart game, and now and the Republicans go out of their way to make MLK a conservative hero, right? I mean, it's uh, tying themselves into weird, odd-shaped pretzels, yeah. yeah. Um, which, yeah, it's a hard thing to do. But so, I, actually, yeah, I think this is a little bit of a tactical make uh, mistake for the Republicans, like yeah. you said. Talk a little bit about Jeff Sessions because oh. this is indicative of how bad I think the next four years are going to be because he is this architect in some ways or a philosophical guru behind this soft white nationalism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, anti immigrant, uh, anti free trade, tough on crime in a way that is just not clear uh, what that means other than targeting minorities, right? Yeah, the plan is provoke riots by doing fucked up shit, then crack down on the riots. Right, exactly. Even though there was nothing you could do about the Sessions nomination, I think the Sessions nominee is a bad sign for this country, and a bad sign for a minority, certainly. Sessions may or may not be a racist. I don't really care, and I think it's hard for the left to claim that anyone is a racist at this point, because every time someone objected to whatever they said, they accused them of being racist, right? It was an easy thing, it was an easy card to play in the deck. Better to call policies racist. Right, or, or yeah, absolutely. Like, But what is clear is that his policies that he intends to enact um, are going to have a really detrimental effect on minorities. Um, I think they're, if they're not explicitly targeting uh, the black inner city or Latinos or any kind of any kind of minority really I think they're they will implicitly treat them differently they will treat crimes that are com- that are committed by blacks and Latinos in a way that is much harsher than the equivalent crimes committed by whites the divisive issue on the right with respect to the new crime landscape is marijuana legalization right and a lot of States 
are moving toward that because it's lucrative and it's smart and it's in their interest. Right. And and I don't think Trump cares one way or the other. Uh, and Sessions is going to be constitutionally inclined to being as hard on it as he can be. Right. Because that's, you know, obviously a really classically good way to throw minorities in prison is by indiscriminately uh, treating them much more harshly for doing things that white people do more. So I think making marijuana legalization an issue that the Democrats embrace full-throatedly, which they haven't before, actually. Right. They've been pretty ambivalent about it. That's going to create some divisions and fractures on the right that they would rather not have right now. Right, especially in the mountain states. And I think this is one of those things where the federal government, even though it claims to be something of law and order, it is going to do its damnedest to provoke any kind of um, disobedience that is uncivil, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I think they're going to try to provoke and get people angry. They think that this chaos is a, a viable plan of theirs because anything they can do that allows them to say, look, we need to take more control of this situation, it, it's basically a power grab. And I think this is why Sessions and Bannon can sort of agree on certain things. I think they're very different people, but I think I think there's an implicit policy here that there's a power grab along with uh, the full, this sort of talking point of being a law and order party. Yeah, and they have a lot of... Uh Help in sheriffs across this country. Who right, you wanted to bring this up. Yeah, they yeah. have an undue amount of power. Uh, they're elected position, so they're not technocrats. Uh, but they also are under attack because people have kind of caught on to the fact that sheriffs have really terrible closure rates for cases. Yeah. Uh, far worse than averages for uh, districts with police chiefs or more of a, a, a an unelected police. Mm. Uh, branch, one that's appointed. The threat is that we're going to overturn this rock and see the amount of power and incompetence that sheriffs have in America and start to re renovate the way that we do crime prevention and control in the first place. Right. And with somebody like Sessions in charge, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. It's not clear that we're going to track police shootings anymore. Yeah. Um, anything that has even a whiff of trying to get some sort of accountability yeah. on a low level uh, for uh, police actions. I think just out the window at this point. There's a great podcast called In the Dark that I recommend everybody listen to that's just about a, a really mishandled child abduction case. Oh, yeah, uh, in yeah. Minnesota uh, during the 80s. I recommend everybody listen to that. I also think the reason Trump has... Uh, glommed on so hard to being the law and order president is because the crime rate is going to go down in the next four years as it has Maybe. in the next in the last in the pre preceding four years well, I, think I think it's trending downward and I think it's trending downward not because of anything anybody is doing I think it's trending downward because of smartphones and technology and, and demographics and demographics right yeah, yeah. Um, so there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of secular reasons why the crime rate has, has declined um, and it's very possible that we're either hitting a plateau or we could actually see a, a bump up. But I think more to your point, if the crime rate declines, then he can take credit for it, yeah. even though this has been a trend for the past 15 years, yeah. at least. But if it goes up, it allows him to make power grabs. Yeah, so either way it wins. Yeah, right? So like he can t threaten Chicago, for example, that has a high murder rate for because of gang activity with... Um, marching in federal agents. Um, so I think either way he wins. I think this is also an interesting conversation. What statistics is he paying attention to? Because uh, even though the crime is bumped up, I think maybe from 2015, uh, certain aggregate numbers are, I think in general we are in a much safer place than we were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, and people just feel safer. If you have a panic button in your pocket at all times, you just are less likely to be worried about violent crime. I mean, there, there are a couple of things that are happening probably in the rural heartland that make people much more aware of crime. First yeah. of all, I mean, it's a reporting uh, about things like Black Lives Matter, So, uh, and also with that sort of the racial implications of having counties that are facing far higher influxes of minorities um, and seeing inner cities being portrayed as both uh, leftist elitist and also crime-ridden. Um, and at the same time, I think rural communities are facing certain hardships, right? So they are facing, they're certainly poorer, they're certainly more likely to be drug uh, infested or having uh, have to deal with serious drug issues and low-level organized crime, right? Sure. So, 
there's a real issue there, but I think there are also some some deep prejudices there that are making Republican base see crime as much more of an issue than the Democratic base. Strategically, it's much more in Trump's interest to tie himself to law and order than it is the economy, uh, because he has far more control over the stats on it. He, right. Uh, it's gonna, people are. This is yeah. This is a good point because it's it's up to the federal government in a, to collect stats. Uh, especially the FBI, and now that Sessions has control over it, they can play the game, yeah, right? Yeah. Whereas the economy, the departments that are in charge of that, there is a there is all sorts of shielding about how they produce their statistics and how they how they compile it. And there's a well-established methodology. And there's a, a bureaucracy that has learned to sort of throw up its walls against sort of federal interference. It doesn't do it 100% all the time, um, but a lot of this was because they had to deal with another would-be autocrat, uh, Richard Nixon. So, so that was those were some of the changes that came out of the uh, Nixon administration, too. So, yeah, so I, I think your point is, is well taken, that the statistics being put out by crime are much more malleable at this point, especially under Sessions, than they um, than, say, the statistics being put out uh, by the economic department's uh, the federal government. Things start to decline in terms of the economy. Like he's kind of to blame, right? Yeah. And if things start to go up, he can kind of take the credit. But there's no way. There's no line that says, okay, things are getting worse. I need to take more control of the economy. Like yeah. it's a harder thing because the Republican base is going to be like, no, yeah. we genuinely believe <laughs> that you let go of the economy in order to make it prosper. So this is a hard thing for him to play both sides of. Like he can't crime. Yeah. I wish Donald Trump had pinned himself as the education president. <laughs> or the healthcare president. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were a couple things I wanted to talk a little bit more about. Um, um, so a couple things that didn't get reported, um, I think, are um, the cult of Bannon um, and, and sort of how a, a lot of people are talking about this, either the soft coup or how much uh, power Bannon has. But effectively, what we've talked about and what is a side strategy here is Really, I think they are moving towards a law and justice party, like you see in Poland, right? Yeah, so, yeah. like, is is the idea that that the Republicans have sort of ceded a lot of power to Trump is an interesting one because it's not clear that that's what Steve Bannon wants. I think Steve Bannon sort of wants his own party, mm-hmm. and he's using the Republican Party to get it right. So, I think he wants this a little bit more ideologically pure sort of soft white nationalist party. Um, so that they can talk about uh, being anti-immigrant and also anti-free trade and anti-globalization and all of these agendas, but he wants that to be his own party and he wants to be the kingmaker in Washington so that he would have enough swing votes. I think that's that's his goal, and the Republicans have sort of opened to their gates to him. Um, that's something that's not being talked about, right? So effectively, whether or not he's setting up a third party and he's basically using the Republicans to do so. Um, this is not a strategy that that anyone's talking about, really, but it seems very obvious, yeah, right? Yeah, it seems like they're creating that. They're triangulating. They're trying to triangulate yeah. pretty quickly. The other thing that uh, I wanted to talk about, and this didn't get reported enough, but there is an ongoing talking point on the side of the Republicans that they're trying to downplay Islam as a religion, right? So now it's a political ideology. Uh, and you'll Did you know that Islam means submission? <laughs> so this is the thing that I think we just have to be really aware of, that this talking point is going to come more and more... It's become it's going to become a louder and louder talking point, that Islam is not a, is not a religion. It is a political ideology. And this has become... It's, it's utter hokum, and I just don't know... I don't know where it's going to go, but this is something that I've just started to hear the rumblings about, and I think it's just going to build more and more momentum. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think the, they're trying to make this culture, which I believe less than 1% Americans, yeah. it's less than 1%, yeah. uh, subscribe to the dominant ideology of the left. Right, because because in the classic way of thinking, like in order to create a party identity or a, a national identity that is Judeo-Christian, you yeah. need something some sort of evil outsider, right? Yeah, to, like, yeah, yeah. to draw the line against, right? right? Like, I've, been, I've been thinking about referring to math, science, and, you know, mystical poetry as Islamo-Christian values. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I would, I would, I'm perfectly happy with that, right? Yeah. Like, math is an Islamo-Christian belief system, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You say math and you have to have Hindu, Hindu Islam. <laughs> Hindu Islam. Yeah, even better. Hindu right. Islam values system. Right. Hindu Islamic Christian values yeah, yeah, system, yeah. right? 
So I guess now uh, you want to go into uh, doubling down on defeat. This is our section where we talk about how Democrats are doing their darndest to stay out of power. Ah, so so easy. Yes, so so easy to just give up <laughs> or just be ineffective. Drift into the warm bath. <laughs> right, right. Indignation. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I think uh, the way that I approach this section of the podcast is like, what are strategies that are coming up, and what yeah. are the strategies that we think are effective? Because um, as we pointed out, we have absolutely no qualifications to be taught. None, zero qualifications. <laughs> but we like, but we like games of strategy. Yeah, yeah. And so does do. Steve Bannon. Yeah. And I think this is something we bring up. I think. Yeah, and also Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. It was a real board game centric like election. You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Steve Bannon was a, a he played he's a World of Warcraft uh, entrepreneur. Do you know that? He's sponsored uh, gold farming in World of Warcraft. Oh, okay. He yeah, made a lot yeah, of money yeah. off that. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Like I, mean, I think he's. I think a lot of them are games nerds. Yeah, and, like you have to be a little. Yeah. Um, so uh, there are a couple of. Um, I think there are a couple of things that I just wanted to bring up. Uh, this is interesting because it was brought up in the biography I was reading about Andrew Jackson. But Andrew Jackson really saw himself as. Uh, a man who represented the majority against minority interests, right? So the minority elites. Um, and I think the Republican Party has this weird notion that they are the majority, but they are effectively an ever-shrinking minority, but they are railing themselves against this minority of elites, right? So they continue. It's an easy narrative for them to get to that says that, okay, well, the Democratic base is nothing. It's small. And if anything, it's a growing base, and it's becoming much more unified by the day and yeah. much more vocal. So, again, I think the Republicans are ignoring the Democratic base to their detriment. Um, but it's interesting because the flip side to that is that the Democrats are a majority party that continue to see themselves as a minority party, like a, someone that protects the minorities against the majority, right? Yeah. And so it's that is a mindset that if... I understand not being being locked out of federal power makes you think that you're on the defensive, but effectively, we have numbers behind us. We don't quite control the territories, but at the same time, I think what's going to matter is that the Democratic Party has to widen the tent or broaden the tent enough to think about how do you invite other types of people in. And you have to start thinking of yourself as a majority party, not just a party of... Uh, protecting minorities and minorities' interests, right, or looking out against the encroachment of individual rights. Um, so there's something about trying to create a, a larger narrative that pulls in a larger population um, that's really important. Okay, so effectively what you're trying to do is you're trying to hold on to territory and take territory from another person, right? This is a lot of how a lot of board games work, right? Right. Um, so I actually think that the way the Democrats should be thinking about this is the same way, right? So we have a coalition, and we are trying to take away parts of the other coalition. This is how you win Democratic elections, right? So what part of the coalition are we losing? What territory are we losing? And what territory are we trying to gain? And how do you trade um, and so one of the things that I bring up is a, that I think is an easy win in terms of quote-unquote electoral t territory is a pro-business side because Trump is absolutely pissing them off. Um, but what, and I think it's important to think about our our goals strategically, right? Like yeah. how, do, how are we reaching out to this base or that base rather than how do we always stage marches? I think marches are really important. They keep the base um, excited. I think they keep it energized. But what is our effectively? What is our territory? What are we losing? What are we gaining? And I was thinking about this in terms of legislation because a couple of things that I saw came up. But um, one of the things that kind of got floated around, I think, even in Scientific American, was that uh, uh, some of the old school old guard of the Republican Party are thinking about a carbon tax. <laughs> Um, and there, and so I think this is actually a brilliant idea. I think it's James Baker actually, and yeah. they're floating a, a carbon tax, which would be forty dollars. I think it's $40 per ton or something like that. So, I mean, it was, I, I may be getting the units wrong, but it was roughly what people were advocating for. Sure. Um, but instead, uh, and they would take that tax and they would distribute it out to people, which I think is brilliant, right? Like, I mean, it's a way to get people on their side, mm -hmm. like, and, you know, the carbon, it would make it immediately popular, right? <laughs> um, I think the Democrats should back this Steal in a the shit out of it, yeah. No, no, they should be like, well, you, we've got a block. You need, like, three senators to, like, pass this on your side. Yeah. We have a block. Yeah. Um, and it would be it would be something that the business community, if not not everyone would uh, appreciate it, and certainly not coal country, but um, I think a lot of 
I think a lot of the business community would be like, hey, this makes a lot of sense. We finally have, rather than having regulatory. Could some tech billionaire put a fucking like industry in West Virginia already to save this country? Like, the Democrats, insofar as they will be allowed to put out policy in any way by the base, I mean, I think like a pro-business plan. Another thing is I think they should really just start passing legislation, right? Or enforce the votes force the Republican Party to vote against them. Like, they yes. should... They oh, should anodyne a legislation like... Anything, yeah. Right, about, oh, I don't know, the president should be promoting businesses of his family. Yeah. We'll get shot down in the Senate, yeah. but it's going to make him look really, really bad. Like yeah. my, my favorite, Kamala Harris, uh, put out something this week that was uh, legislation that would... Re- or would allow refugees who are detained to have lawyers. Right. Which I thought was a great piece of legislation right. to put out because making them vote against it right. just looks really bad. You know, you know, so. Yeah, so we should be thinking about how do we craft legislation that effectively just trolls the national yeah. government, no, right? So yeah. one, basic rights. Yeah. Two, basic checks and balances on the president, sure. right? Like, the, yes. the one about having a psychiatrist, I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> you see that with legislation to make right. to force the president to visit a psychiatrist every now and then, uh, just to check in, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> just in case. Um, I actually think that going back to making sure that there's a separation between business interests and, and, and presidential interests, because the, the laws on the, on the books are not... I don't allow any sort of control. Of yeah, that. Trump's a teachable moment. Yeah. As his presidency craps out, we can find out why and try to introduce legislation to make it not so bad in the right. future. So yeah, there is a piece of legislation that's needed to say that the president can't use the office to further his personal business or that of his family. Right. And and you could just put that out there. Yeah. It'll get shot down. Yeah. But all of a sudden, the Republicans are voting against it. Yeah. And, and, there's no reason. Or just tweeting against private citizens. Like, right. I think that should be something that's in there. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it just seems so cruel and unnecessary. Right. So you create a moral hazard there because some deranged wacko shoots them, and then you're responsible for that. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think there's a number of, like, effectively trolling pieces of legislation. Some of them make perfect sense. You just have to craft yeah. them and be like, this is completely anodyne. Right, I right. can't believe you're voting against. The president cannot take uh, un, you know, unlicensed hair growth drugs. <laughs> <laughs> All hair growth drugs that a president takes must be approved by the FDA. Yeah, so this so uh, and I just and so this is uh goes to a large argument like how do you troll Donald Trump because yeah. in some ways they always talk about how we have, we effectively elected a troll. But he is so vulnerable to oh, his own mojo. Yeah, yeah. And there was no better example of this is actually than the Saturday Night Live oh, stuff yeah, that came yeah. out. So um, I guess most people saw it, but like Melissa McCarthy did a pretty great impression of Sean Spicer. Yeah. So he watches the show, yeah. um, and he gets very upset. And so the rumor is that it actually puts Sean Spicer in a bad light in the Trump administration sure. because it makes him look bad and he was yeah. played by a woman. Yeah. And so there's a counter-argument that now... Hey, Donald out. Trump is not a strong woman. He can't handle right, it. Right, right. He can't handle it. Can't. But I actually think that they sh- the one person that will effectively troll Donald Trump better than anyone is Rosie O'Donnell. Because, like, he hates her. Yeah. And he can't help himself about hating her. So if you put her in any national spotlight... And I know she's terrible. Yeah. I know she's terrible. <laughs> but he... Wa- the people will be like, why are you picking on this person who none of us like? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, And yeah. he'll just come off looking petty. And I think that there should be, like a whole agenda of how do you troll Donald Trump and you shouldn't have Alec Baldwin play him on Saturday Night Live that was a huge tactical mistake no one's more charismatic and like an alpha leader than Alec Baldwin yeah he should have been played by either Tracy Morgan or Tom Arnold and then have Rosie O'Donnell on somewhere in the national spotlight all the time have her host Apprentice NBC can do it go Rosie back to the view <laughs> was she ever on the view I don't know I think she's yeah. on the view yeah yeah, yeah. so go back to the view <laughs> And what'll happen is that he can't help himself but react to certain situations. You know what she should do? NFL commentator. <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell oh. up there with Terry Bradshaw and fucking Howie Long. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It, and it'll just distract him. Like, put her on her, and you put her in the national spotlight on Friday because he's had this policy of like he wants to launch things over the weekend so that the news cycle has died out and he gets yeah. an event, uh, uh, effectively a... Uh, a blank like blank slate to write over the news cycle. Classic strategy. That's right, exactly. So he, he's exploited the weekend news cycle. So you put Rosie O'Donnell in on, on Friday afternoon so jo- Donald Trump can't help himself but like blow up like by Saturday morning over Rosie O'Donnell and whatever stupid shit she's saying. You know, if, she, if we just crafted like an impeccably sourced AP style BBC-esque roundup of the week's events... 
And she read it in like a monotone voice once a week. It's like Rosie O'Donnell brings you the truth. You know? I think I think, I think it would drive the point is, it would drive it's not, crazy. It's not that Rose So that is that is my uh, that is uh how to how to troll Trump. Yeah, good idea, good yeah. idea. Alright, yeah, sure. So outside the bubble is our section where we try to pull in media from outside our liberal elite bubble. And so one of the things that I took from the election was, and I think this is a criticism uh, put forth by the right, which I think is fair, is that in some ways there is a little bit of an elitism in the liberal narrative, right? Like, so we tend to be in uh, big cities and we tend to think of ourselves as educated and superior. And I'm not saying that this is a tr- true and uh, absolutely 100% carries throughout every person in the Democratic coalition, but it rang true for me. Like, I think there is, a, there is, a, there was a little bit of a, uh, at least a certain amount of classicism in on the on the side of the left or on the Democratic Party, and I think that prevented them from being able to relate to, say, the Midwest or working class. And certainly, the way that I take in media tends to be uh, a lot of the like well-heeled sources of journalism, like Washington Post, or I like the 538, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, and even I look down on the New York Times. Uh, because, <laughs> but I don't read you. Yeah, I don't. Like, I don't read the Post. I don't read, um, uh, and I don't take in sources. We don't go to WWE matches or anything Not like yet. that. Not yet. Not yet. Um, but yeah. So like, anytime I, I feel uh, like the, alleging something in my worldview is is classist. I think I I, I only get my news from poetry. So. <laughs> Damn, you are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> that is the worst, worst sentence anyone has ever said. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it, uh, I'm sensitive to that, that allegation, and I think that if and if that's true, then I should try to redress that. So um, one of the things that I'm going to put forth as outside the bubble is the Howard Stern show, um, and so that is certainly not. With, I mean, even though it's New York City, yeah, even it's not liberal. Uh, he and he he backed Clinton. I think that it's certainly not uh, like a, a, a really elitist program. So one of the and I won't. I'm not recommending the entire show. I don't. I don't listen enough. But there was a segment on the Howard Stern show, I think last week, where he talks about his friendship with Donald Trump, and it is the most insightful portrait of Donald Trump I've ever heard. Um, it is really good because he considers himself a friend. He considers himself uh, also a Clinton supporter, and uh, so it is an interesting balancing act that Howard Stern pulls off. Um, and it's only 16 minutes long, mm-hmm. um, but he paints this kind of decent portrait of a man who's maybe in over his head um, and it, towards the end of the interview he sort of uh, rolls up with this idea that effectively Donald Trump ran because it's always been good for him to talk about running for president yeah. for the presidential nomination right um, it helps his book sales and as whatever was winding down with The Apprentice he said well fine I'm just going to run for the president it was on his vision board you're telling me he ran for president because of the secret <laughs> right, right 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 so it was just pre- so it and he thought that maybe it, what the publicity generated by the candidacy would actually help him negotiate with whoever was going to get a better the contract yeah right. Um, and yeah, the electorate called his bluff. Um, so it's a really fascinating listen, um, and I would totally recommend anyone who cares about thinking about Donald Trump in that way. Why does does does, does Howard Stern talk about why he likes Donald Trump? What positive attributes? He has? Yeah, I think he considers him a friend. Like I think yeah. they're friendly, and they don't talk politics, but they they consider each other. Uh, to be friends, like they, yeah. they're buddy buddy. They hang out. They like hanging out with each other. Um, and I think, famously, I think Howard Stern refused to turn over tapes. Yeah, right. Um, and I think you know, that's the mark of a decent brand. But so I thought that was a really interesting. I thought it was a really interesting listen. And I think there are a lot of people who like psychiatrists will write their profiles of Donald Trump. But this was this felt really personal. It felt it felt. Um, Felt particularly like I think it's somewhat famously P.G. Woodhouse, author of the Jeeves and Wooster novels, yeah. uh, was in Berlin during World War Two and used to send out broadcasts about how how much he you know thought Hitler wasn't so bad. <laughs> uh, so the the other thing I, I would suggest in terms of thinking about outside the bubble is a five thirty eight podcast with it, and they call it Party Time. And what they do is they interview various parts of the two parties. So. 
uh, I don't think of 538 as being outside the bubble in any way, mm-hmm. um, but they have, what they did was a series of interviews, long interviews, uh, with different people who are active in the Republican Party. They'll do the version that is the people that are uh, active in different branches of the Democratic Party later. But um, there are a couple that I thought were really interesting because these are uh, the first set of interviews um, were about people who were supporting Trump and who were backing Trump. And uh, I had a conversation earlier with a friend of mine, and he was just like, I don't understand the other side. And he was very upset about the Trump election. He says, <coughs> um, but this is an interesting argument on the side of of Trump supporters, and in particular, their first interview I thought was really good because he's a uh, this guy's a consultant. He's talking about uh, uh, Trump in a way that's supportive, um, but it is also a, what sounds like a, a sane person who is making a reasonable argument and good faith about why he supports Trump. And if anything, it's the actual the 538 reporters who screw it up because they're super annoying, especially one of the guys. It's just really annoying. But if you can get past the 538 interview, yeah. what the guy is saying is really interesting. And uh, in particular, um, the the first podcast in the series I thought was really illuminating. Um, there is a guy who's actually anti-immigration, and he talked about what he feels about this issue. And I'm on the exact opposite uh, side of the spectrum, but I thought it was an interesting argument, and I, I, I it was just, it was, I thought it was salutary for me to listen to it. Um, so I, I would recommend that the first series of the podcast is called Party Time um, by 538, and the second series is just about people on the Republican side who have misgivings about Trump, which is also interesting, but uh, I think that would play more to people who are anti-Trump anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. those are good suggestions. Yeah. I didn't know about that 538. Yeah. yeah, so my my outside the bubble homework. Uh, there was an article that came out uh, called "What Does Steve Bannon Want You to Read?" Oh yeah, uh, and it just listed a couple books that Steve Bannon, you know, recommends and has been influenced by. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'll read those books. So I read uh, "Anti Fragile." Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nassim Talib, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you read that one? Uh, No, I read, uh, I think I read Black Swan. Black Swan, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm familiar with Strauss Howe Generational Theory, but they wrote a book called The Fourth Turning. Uh, And those are the two books that were mentioned in the article. Yeah. Uh, Strauss Howe Generational Theory uh, is the theory that gave us the terms Millennial and Generation X and Baby Boomer. It's this book that came out in the 90s. Uh, yeah. and it has it's this very elaborate metaphysics that says that there's like four generation stages yeah. or epochs that people you know you, the one generation is the idealist and the next generation is part of like the chaos and then it just like cycles through right yeah it's uh, it's actually kind of Hindu and it's like implementation yeah like, we- my people believe in cycles. Yeah, yeah, the stages of, you know, to like the, the thousand year cycle that leads yeah. to destruction or whatever. It's pretty much bullshit. I don't really believe in generations. I think it's really annoying to talk about things in terms of generation. We all do and we have to, and it's like something that comes, but, you know, people are older and people are younger and we influence sure. each other. And, you know, people that are younger rebel against people that are older and people that are older define their adulthood in terms of what people that are younger are doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's human beings. I, I don't know that we need to codify it any further than that. Right. Did you get anything out of the, uh, I guess, the, was it the fourth turning? Yeah. So the reason that all this stuff, the, all these people who the people that wrote this book and came up with these theories they all went on to become republican strategists and okay. they've got like some life coach system that, sure. you know, to teach you how to implement uh how to how, in your workplace how to talk to millennials you know yeah. like stuff like that and the so the ideas about these generation theory was about how to target messaging toward these specific generations with the assumption that all young people are kind of inherently liberal uh, and so we need to figure out how to like break them when they're young, right? Uh, right. How to I mean, continually create messaging that is like hip and interesting by like figuring out what it is that these generations find hip and interesting, right? Uh, and so, what do you think Steve Bannon got out of it? And what do you think Steve Bannon is getting out of saying other people should read it? I don't know. I think it's like astrology, and it's you know non rigorous kind of bullshit millennials have these values Gen X has these values baby boomers have these values however I do think that this cycle has been all about like harnessing the power of 
disaffected teenagers in order to turn them into bots that spam out and shitpost in favor of something they barely understand. And I think that has been an effective strategy. And if we're looking at a former gold miner, right? Yeah. A World of Warcraft gold miner, I think his ability to understand the power of resentful youth and to tap into the resentful youth mm. inside old men yeah. uh, has been effective. And it, right. I think I think what he wants people to gain from this book is just that understanding that inside everybody is this like chaos spirit right yeah what about uh the anti-fragile this was a more interesting book like i yeah i i the opposite of of fragile is not something that uh is can't be broken or avoids being broken but that when it is shocked and hurt and bad things happen to it it actually gets like better right Flex- uh, yeah, yeah. It, it gets stronger and right. it, it's it, it, it improves it yeah uh, in a masochistic way right right so there's no word for that in the English language so the new word for that is anti-fragile right so it it thrives on being hurt yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. the system improves because yeah. of shocks and pain right and uh, so this book is all about exploring that concept right uh, which he takes as a given it's just like that's a fact like this these these things exist A which you know I, I don't buy that I don't think that's true I think you know all things decay and move forward slowly to doom uh, and basic laws of the universe sure yeah but th- th- supposing that there is such a thing that does get better with pain and shocks and that there are systems that build on that increase in complexity for sure sure but systems that actually improve their functioning capacity if they're harmed anyway so he lists a whole uh, you know range of things that he considers to be anti-fragile yeah uh, some of them make sense some of them don't yeah uh, and he the real crux of the book is that he thinks that things that are planned are doomed to failure that any kind of plan is bad right and planning is like an elite thing and we should avoid it at all times right. he, can, he considers he has a word for people that believe in planning and he calls them Harvard Soviets yeah and right. and so he sees like the liberal elite everywhere as buying into this idea of like plans and business and education he he considers the most like anti-fragile job being a taxi driver which i find hilarious being is that that's a job that's disappearing left and right but uh as a result of technological progress i mean maybe barber it's flexible it's flexible right which is better right yes flexible is the true opposite of fragile well yeah i think i think it's it's about a system that is able to take in information and adapt to it right 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 Right. so that's an allow and in incremental processes right like yeah yeah, yeah. rather than building a system that follows a plan it should be the plan should be to respond to the environment organically right absolutely i mean that's that makes sense any good any good system should respond that way yeah yeah it's a system that has to be able to take in information right Right. a system and i I, i'm sympathetic to the idea that a system that has evolved is generally speaking a better system that than one that has been implemented from the top down right However, some some things that we do are not subject to the process of evolution. Right. They must be planned yeah. because they are human endeavors. So, I mean, these are interesting debates. So, but yeah. what do you think Steve Bannon is getting out of this book? And what do you think Steve Bannon is getting out of telling you to read this book? I think he looks at Trump as somebody who is the most anti-fragile person. Uh, an anti-fragile candidate. The more he is hurt, the more people try to attack him, the stronger he gets. Right, like the Hulk. It actually helps him. And I think he wants people in the administration to think of the Trump administration in this way. To court chaos, to court yeah. uh, attacks and violence, yeah. to, to court terrorism, to court all these shocks to America in the guise of Trump yeah. because they will improve America. The pain that we will feel during the next four years will be an improving pain. Okay. Uh, and so I think he wants people to embrace this idea in order to uh, avoid having to take responsibility for the pain that okay. they'd be causing America. Yeah, yeah. Just bad policy. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. It's okay. a sadistic book, or right, right. it's an apology for sadism anyway. I recommend everybody try to read as much as they can before they throw it against the wall. <laughs> uh, it's one of the, it's like a business philosophy book. Yeah. It's probably my least favorite kind of book. Uh, yeah, they can be pretty terrible. But I, I thought Black Swan was decent. I didn't, I didn't read Black Swan. Okay. But I think, but you know, I've read Freakonomics. I've read, no, every, Freakonomics is the worst book. Well, that's what I'm saying. When we look back on this time period in history, 
uh, and we're looking for the, I guess, the intellectual reasons why shit went wrong. We're looking for that Ernst Younger storm of steel that caused everybody to be, you know, like a Nazi or like Nietzsche yeah. or Wagner. Yeah. It's going to be these pop philosophy business books <laughs> we, that we failed to reckon with intellectually. <laughs> and that just got passed around yeah. among, like, executives and were turned into yeah. this, like, way of thinking or justification of people's worst impulses. And I think anti-fragile is... I, I will say this. Uh, I will say this. There is actually an executive book summary service that I, uh, I have access to because of where I work. So it's not even... You don't even pass the book around. You pass the, like... The executive summary around? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> cool. So uh, do you want to talk about random shit now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about random shit. Um, so I guess maybe the topic this week is uh, food. Yeah. Uh, in particular... Uh, Food in uh, New York, maybe. And what is more vital to the soul than a, a fantastic meal with good company? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess um, uh, I come off as being a bit of a foodie. I think a lot of that is driven by my wife. And uh, the reason I guess we're talking about it this week is because I have to plan Valentine's Day dinner. <laughs> um, so I have to think about what I want to do. And my wife um, is going to... It's not that I can just figure out whatever is on open table, right? Yeah. I mean, because my wife has certain standards, and um, I, early on in our dating history, um, I was no longer allowed to make restaurant recommendations because right. it was clear that my game was not up to scratch, and uh, I had to improve my game. Um, so, food is something that I, certainly I spend a, a fair amount of my time on, um, and I one of the things I like about one of the things I like about this neighborhood is that. It is a real um, hodgepodge of just amazing kind of ethnic food, um, like just like simple, cheap, tasty food that caters to different ethnicities. So, in our neighborhood, uh, there are a lot of Tibetans. So the Tibetan momos, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of places you can go. Yeah, yeah. and some of the places are just delicious. Um, we are, uh, you know, five minutes away from all night taco stands, like 10 minutes, maybe not even five minutes away from like, uh, chicken, like Colombian chicken or like Peruvian chicken. Argentinian steakhouse. There's a sushi restaurant. Right. There's a, to, yeah. There's a Russian grocery store. You can get like right. crepes and, and caviar. Yeah. That's our immediate neighborhood. You yeah. take a, the subway, like a one stop, you, you're all of a sudden in Thai town. Yeah. Uh, decent Chinese food. There's a little strip around uh, Elmhurst. We were, uh, we were at an Indonesian place last week. Yeah, we were at an Indonesian yeah. place, which was right down the street from a Malaysian place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you go the other way towards the store, you get Greek food. Um, and there's also just a, you know a couple good diners. There's yeah. Irish bars where you can get fried shit. And yeah, yeah. So there's like a it's just a wealth of food uh, in New York City. And it's not always expensive, right? Like, no, I mean, especially no. in our neighborhood, it's really cheap. And I think that's one of the things that continues to draw me to the city. Yeah. Um, there are things I worry about, though. Um, I have a buddy who works at a, a higher-end restaurant, certainly. It used to be a famous restaurant. And um, uh, with the food scene kind of having blown up in New York City, like, I think... Uh, and what I mean by that is I think people spend more and more of their money on food. Like, it's, it's the luxury people afford for themselves, right? So we don't necessarily buy nice cars or nice clothes. We don't care yeah. about those things. Also, anymore. you can't download it. Right, exactly, right? <laughs> you can't right. steal food. We don't, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so steal we, food. Yeah, <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, so what? what is the luxury that we, we've moved to? It's not buying a lot of shit. It's, it's actually just having this experience of food. Um, and as we devote more resources to things like eating, um, which is good for us, some of which is not. Um, uh, I wonder what's happening to New York City. And one of the things that's happening is, like, uh, my buddy who works in this restaurant, it's hard for them to get help, right? Because people can't afford to live in New York City. Like, the people who work in the restaurants can't afford to live in New York City, right? Because if you work in a restaurant you in New York City, you go home at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, which means that you should probably live near where you work. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in the Lower East Side, right? Right. And yeah. I think that's why a lot of restaurants are moving out to Brooklyn, um, maybe some eventually to Queens, but um, it's it's hard. So growing up was like, like did you sit down at the table and have like a family meal? No, I think it? I think uh, we didn't actually. I think one of the one I think there was an interesting story. I think in food um, because 
Uh, my parents are Hindu, and they um, and so my dad and my mom grew up largely vegetarian. They grew up vegetarian. My mom remained vegetarian throughout her life. Um, she's still alive, so she's still vegetarian in North Carolina. In North Carolina, in the South, yeah. yeah so she so and my parents came to this country through in Florida, and then moved to North Carolina. So. Uh, my mom would have to go to steakhouses and for like work or whatever, and she just had to eat the potato. Um, and um, so there, there is a. But I mean, I think there or eat French fries and not ask too many questions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that's. And, and so there was kind of a struggle growing up. So like, but I think they also wanted me and my sister to assimilate in a way. Right. So I grew up eating barbecue, right? And I grew up eating uh, a lot of different types of food. Um, uh, and I did, and my mom made Indian food at home. So, like, some of my favorite things are still Indian food. But we also, she also made barbecue chicken, which is weird because she's vegetarian, so she could never taste it. And <sighs> so, she would have to get the recipe from uh, from our next door neighbor, who are the old southern couple. And then we ate this thing. It was an Indian dish. It's called kima mutter. It's just beef and peas. But she had to get it from her Muslim friend who had to teach her how to cook beef. So, like, and that was that was the kind of thing that my mom did, right? Um, so there was a lot of tastes and flavors coming in. Uh, in college, I was one of the peop- one of the few people who was actually like using the kitchen to cook. Sure, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I would actually make myself breakfast, yeah. like a proper southern breakfast <laughs> sure. with like sausage and eggs in the morning. <laughs> I didn't do it every morning, um, but I did it, and I thought it was really important. And actually, in college, I worked in the cafeteria. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so that was so. I guess maybe I've always and I guess so. Like I guess food has always been the three bread and. Uh, that was one of the things that I and my wife really like liked about each other is that food was important to us. Um, just having like a, a fun meal with yeah. people is like that's I think that's the you know that's the best thing you can do in life. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So this yeah people around you know whether that's like I I I love diners like that's my favorite yeah. thing like I can I still love a Waffle House yeah yeah absolutely um, uh, and actually my th- that's one of the chain restaurants in the south that my my wife likes to go to it's like the Waffle House she's smothered like, and covered yeah well, she really loves the waffles she's yeah, like yeah, yeah she yeah. likes that yeah. it's really good they yeah, do a good job solid. yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right. I think there's something about, and we talk a little bit about community, but, yeah. like, in my world, community, like, it's hard for me to have a community around people who don't share, like, food interests. Yeah, for sure. What um, are you going to do? How yeah, you gonna yeah. Go? I mean, yeah. this is, this is a, it's fundamental. It's yeah. why it's why dietary restrictions grow up around communities. Yeah. This is, uh, and nothing actually makes me happier than, like, cooking for people I care about, right? I'm definitely more of an eater. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I mean, I need someone on the other hand. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, um, that's a... Food is a luxury that a lot of, I mean, it, you know, you can, a lot of us, I mean, even people who don't have a lot of money, like, you can afford to maybe spend an extra $20 every so often on a meal. Yeah. And it can be a better meal. And don't eat alone. You know, find right. somebody that, if you feel bad, go out there, you know, yeah. find somebody and talk to them and, and take them out. Yeah. Cool. All right. Is that it? Yeah, I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to episode seven of The yeah. Requirement. And uh, don't forget, we also have a subreddit. Oh, yeah. Check out our subreddit at our room of requirements. Facebook, Twitter, email, coming soon. Yeah. All right. Here's our, here's our music again. Yeah, here's our music.